successful entrepreneur, visionary, thought leader, and innovator. These are my quick takeaways from my conversation with Bogdan Konstantin. I'm lucky to be able to call Bogdan a friend and watch him create one successful venture after another. Bogdan's experience doesn't compete with us as financial advisors, but the lessons he has learned and the insights he brings can help us innovate and differentiate from the crowd. He started with Delta, but took a leap of faith going full-time with the startup he co-founded while at Delta. That company, Menguin, an extremely successful online tuxedo business that was later bought by the same man that made the saying, you're going to like the way you look, I guarantee it. Bogdan has taken the lessons he learned to start another company, an innovative conversational commerce company to help brands achieve great success by communicating with customers and potential customers via text messaging. It's innovative and it's the future, and we explore all of it with Bogdan on this episode. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Bogdan, up from in, in Louisville. Thanks for joining us, man. How you been? Thanks so much for having me, Matt. It's great to be here. I've been great. What about you? I can't complain. Things have been really good. Uh, things have been really good. So uh, we missed you down here in Atlanta, but you're you're, you're up in Louisville now, uh, and you're you're used to kind of traveling all around. You've been to uh, more countries, I think, than I can uh, say I've been to cities, which is pretty impressive. Uh, no, I am. It's funny. Uh, so before, so I started Menguin in Atlanta, moved to Northwest Arkansas, now in Kentucky. Uh, we would jokingly say when we were talking to investors and things like that, that we're on a roadmap of the quote unquote least desirable states in America. <laughs> uh, uh, all joking aside, we've, we've been really blessed and fortunate. And, you know, everywhere we've been is great communities of, of people that want to help, which has been great so far. Uh, but you're right. A lot of travel, especially kind of in the nature of the business that we're in today. Uh, uh, always meeting with clients and they happen to be all over the country from, you know, central Indiana to San Francisco to, you know, southern Florida, wherever they may be, we'll go out and kind of get together. With yeah. And it's just kind of the, the way it's been for you growing up in Romania and Germany and, and then moving over here. Right. And so uh, you just go wherever the opportunity lies, it seems like. That's exactly it. It's a great way to put it, man. Um, I have never shied away from travel. And I think that a big part of who I am is. I will do whatever it takes to be successful and whatever that, that means to me and other people, right? But to me, that means chasing opportunity. And if that opportunity, literally, we moved to Northwest Arkansas on a whim. There was an investor we flew out to meet. Uh, he said if we moved out there, he would give us mentorship and most importantly, financial resources. So literally, I said, okay. You know, it's like I'm a big believer in, in, I think, luck, but also a bit of like this predetermined, I don't want to call it destiny because in a lot of ways you make your own luck, but like, when life opens a door, you need to walk through it, right? Mm -hmm. And if that means mm -hmm. relocating or traveling or whatever. Uh, and I think I got that from my parents because they always did the same thing growing up. You know, there was never a limit to where they would go or what they would do. It's kind of, you know, especially my dad to, to do what was best for his family. So I think that kind of stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, uh, much to my wife's chagrin, I, I, she has moved a lot and she's been awesome because but, of that. Yeah, that's, you have to give a lot of credit to her, man, because she's been, she's been sticking with you in all of these places. And uh, I, I don't know many um, wives that were uh, in Atlanta that were like, yeah, let's move over to Northwest Arkansas. That's exactly right. where I wanted to start a family. 
<laughs> right. Especially when we have family in, in Atlanta, you know, she did a great job there. Uh, all these things, it was, it was, it was comfortable. Right. And there was a very clear, clear path to success. Uh, and ended up just saying, no, let's try something different. And it worked out. Okay. It, it, uh, it definitely did. And sometimes you just got to be comfortable being uncomfortable, right? That's what it's all about. Uh, well, I'm, I'm excited to get into this uh, and learn more about Voxy because I, I, we were lucky enough to, to be in Atlanta when you started Manguin and, and Connect, and I was able to kind of follow that journey, which was an awesome journey to follow. Um, and now we get a, another journey to start following, so I'm, I'm excited to learn more about uh, Voxy. And I think the best way for us to start this conversation is really helping everybody understand what conversational commerce is, because that's what you say right. that Voxy does. What is conversational commerce? That's a great question, Matt. So let, let me tell a quick story about why I started Vox, and I think that'll answer a lot of questions. So at Menguin, we, we were a, a direct-to-consumer company. We rented suits and tuxes on the internet, like Netflix for tux rental, delivered straight to your door, primarily for weddings. Our target consumer was a millennial, 25 to 35. They were on average 29 years old, and we were selling to the bride or groom who made the decision on behalf of the entire bridal party, usually seven groomsmen. So high revenue event and you know, I was originally our CTO, so I built the our, our, our original product, and then I ended up leading our go-to-market as our CMO. Not a classically trained marketer by any means, kind of taught myself on the job. It was one of those things where, you know, the classic, if you build it, they will come. We built it, no one came, so we had to figure out distribution, how to get them there. But what I learned from this, uh, this entire thing is that, you know, we were a direct-to-consumer brand trying to build this relationship with this customer via email. We had a six-month sales cycle. And it just did not work, Matt. And I was beating my head against the wall. We got really good at email marketing. I probably hired and fired more email marketing platforms than the average person knows exist, looking for a better solution. And finally, one day, I just threw my hands up and said, email is not the answer. Because millennials, every year, the the usage decreases because it's inbox overload. And then I did some research on Gen Z, who comes up after millennials. These are people that are 18 years and younger, generally. They don't actually know what their email is, Matt. They live, they set up an email, they, they have an email because they set up their smartphone. And then after that, they live exclusively in messaging apps. So I had this like light bulb moment where I was like, we're screwed. You know, our consumer today, email works ish, but in five years, we're going to be completely screwed because we'll have a brand new consumer that we had to sell to. And they were going to be completely absent from our number one channel that we use for attention marketing, right? So I started thinking, what can we do differently? So at Menguin, I started playing around with this idea one day of asking you for your cell phone number and literally texting you from your from my personal cell. So I threw up a, a quick landing page and I asked for your cell phone number. Got an 82% opt-in rate. So for a lot of people, they're like, they don't want, you know, we talk to a lot of folks, investor types, et cetera, that are in their, you know, 40 plus, And they're like, I don't want anybody texting me. I can tell you that millennials and Gen Z have no problem, with them, mm-hmm. right? So we got all these numbers and the next day we texted them from our personal cell phones. We got a 70% response rate, and over the next four weeks, we closed 50% of that business because we were building a one-to-one relationship, right? I think what we've hit this point in the market where there's all this personalization technology that just feels inauthentic and canned, and the consumer can see that, right? So what Voxy is, is it helps brands build a one-to-one relationship with their consumers that are behaviorally triggered based on what your consumer is doing. Uh, whether they respond or don't respond determines what happens next. They click a link, they convert, they don't convert. All that determines what happens next from a communication standpoint via whatever medium they're most likely to engage on. So we launched with text because that was the lowest hanging fruit. But in the future, you, you can expect to see Voxy living in your Instagram direct message, 
Twitter DMs, Line, WeChat, wherever your millennial Gen Z and then wherever comes after Gen Z, which is technically Gen Alpha, uh, uh, wherever they live, you're going to be able to send the right message at the right time via the right medium that most gets that customer to engage and do whatever you as the brand want them to do, whether that's respond, click, convert, whatever, in a way that is authentic and meaningful and one-to-one. And that's really what we, what we help brands do. We yeah, I think build- that that's really, I, I mean, I'm so aligned with you in that mentality. And I think that that's the future of it. Because I mean, I think that even people that say, because I go to a lot of advisors and I talk with a lot of financial advisors all the time. And we've talked about, we talk about text messaging, right? As, as a new form of communication of being able to get your information out, whether it's market updates or meeting yeah. scheduling or whatever it may be. And they say, well, no, my client's average age is, you know, 62. And I'll tell you this, I've seen clients in the financial advisory world utilize text messaging and have better response rates and build stronger relationships with texting to clients that are older. They're, they're texting their grandkids, they're FaceTiming with their grandkids. And so the people that say that, oh, I'm 45 and I would rather email than text or my clients don't want to interact via text messaging, I think are are missing the boat because they probably should just ask their clients. And you'd be surprised that I think people are more comfortable with texting uh, than uh, us as the business servicers are, are anticipating. I think you're exactly right. And obviously, I'm very bullish on this concept. The big one that, that you, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head, Matt, they're talking with their current customer who's 62. What about the customer that comes after them and the customer that comes after them, right? I think it's really easy in business to have this narrow-minded view of, I just need to solve today's problem, right? Which is my customer that's 62. And then you look up and you don't have a pipeline of customers that come after that one because they went with someone else that was texting, that was engaging, that was liking their Instagram photos, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. That was building that relationship where that customer lives and feels comfortable. And it wasn't email, it wasn't via robocall or whatever, right? And that's, I think, where, where brands and, and in particular financial advisors need to be thinking. It's not where am I today, it's where, it, where, what is my future customer going to do? Like, I could have, email was fine, right? It sucked. And, you know, I had a pipeline. I was able to consistent 20% open rate. But I was looking for better because if I flipped it on its head, that meant that 80% of my marketing dollars weren't working because yeah. 80% of my customers weren't opening my emails. So if I had just been complacent, you know, a 20% open rate in the e-commerce world is phenomenal. The average is 7 8%, right? So we were already doing way better. So if I was just saying, well, I'm beating my peers, then that would have been fine, right? But we, we had very much this culture of not being complacent and always looking for the next great thing. And I think that's what we talked about briefly on this call about being un- uncomfortable, finding a way to be okay with being uncomfortable and being okay and thriving in, 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 an ad- in an atmosphere of change, I think is key, especially in entrepreneurism and even more so in, in the business world. Yeah, and I, I think that, that if there is a one point to take away from this whole conversation, and I don't even know where it's gonna go after this, is for financial advisors to look at turning the way they do business on their head, right? Investment management may be similar and everything of that nature, but how you communicate can be turned on its head. And and I, I would even say that the 62-year-old wants to be texted. And so, uh, but but you have to be willing to be uncomfortable, like you said. Now, I guess the question that some people are probably thinking out there is like, okay, text messaging sounds great. I agree. Everybody texts. But is in five years, is text messaging and DMs within your Instagram and, and Twitter or whatever it may be, is it just going to become another inbox where it's going to be so cluttered? Because right, right now, emails get lost in my inbox because I get so many of them that I don't want to, I just forget about them. 
Is right. that going to happen with text messaging too? And so uh, if the firms that don't adopt it today that wait five years, are they just going to be adopting old technology that's not as uh, uh, popular or accepted? That's a great question. I think where we get it wrong is this idea that we'll just mass spam these people and they'll be okay with it. I think we've seen this new era of consumer where the, the communication preference, and that's why I said we're behaviorally triggered. We're only going to text you if you want to be texted. We're only going to engage with you based on what you're doing back, right? It's not a one-way street, which is how a lot of brands treat email. I'm going to blast you every single day, promo, 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 right? It's going to be both ways. If you engage, if you respond, if you don't respond, if you're clicking these links, if you're doing these things, if you're buying, right, then we have the data points to say, okay, Matt is okay. He's good to go. This is working and this is exactly via the cadence that he wants. I think that is the key and that's kind of so, you know, we're overlaying artificial intelligence, natural language processing. That's the world we're building where it's right message, right time based on your permissions and your wants and your needs, not the other way around. It's not oh, crap, it's Black Friday. I mean, I'm a retailer. I got to just mass spam everybody to, to try to maximize my sales. So I hit my Q4 numbers. No, right. Or, or as the financial advisor, I need, you know, I need this XYZ person to put an extra XYZ money into this particular account for my SPIP or whatever, right? Like that's not what it is. Mm-hmm. It needs to be very much relationally driven based on a, a two-way mutually agreed upon uh, uh, interaction. Where and I, I think that that is again. It, it, this is a whole matter of changing the way that you think about communication, right? right? Because so often people are like, "Well, I got to just go and pound, pound, pound." But with technologies and the advancements today, is you are able to utilize a lot of that behavioral aspect of it to do it on demand based on actions they're taking. What are some of the things as you've been bringing on clients to Voxy that you've seen have been challenges for adoption? Right by the brands themselves, by the leaders in the companies, and how if you've seen any, and if you and how have you overcome those from that standpoint? That's a great question. So real quick, um, Voxy right now with our current iteration is seeing phenomenal results. On average, our e-commerce customers are seeing three to five x increases in revenue, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, fifty percent response rates, thirty four percent click through rates, and they're converting anywhere between ten to forty percent of all the people they, they communicate with via text. So crazy channel in terms of efficacy and performance, uh, which is great. The big problem that we've seen is it's a new performance marketing channel, right? It's a new method of engagement, almost akin to email marketing. So we've had to do a lot of, I don't want to call it handholding, but educating our consumers. What's the right messaging? What's the right time? People will look at it and they'll say, I don't know what to tell these people, right? I don't know what to say. In email, you have this free form. I could write paragraphs if I wanted. Most people wouldn't read them, but I could do that, right? Text forces you to be concise. And it forces you to be a little more thoughtful in your interaction. And that's where we've seen that we needed to kind of help our customers a little more. So we actually have copywriters on staff that can help. And we have that as essentially a, an ad hoc free service for all of our retailers, all of our customers that we work with, but now primarily business to consumer companies. Um, and we give them those resources to help them speak on brand, be on brand and build those relationships. Because that's, that's a big part of it. It's like, what do you say, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and we backward. what do you want to have? What do you want to happen from this interaction? Oftentimes, it's like, I want them to know that I've got their back. Or I want them to know I care about the experience with our company or whatever it may be. Okay, once we have our end goal, this is what we want from this interaction, we can work back from there. Yeah. And that's easy. 
and I, I think that that is kind of the the idea is like, what is it that you, and that's the challenge that advisors have when adopting technology is that they, they, what is the why? Why am I using this and what is the value? And I think that within any type of process, right, with, with e-commerce, it's a matter of how do I get that sale and how do I get that engagement and build that longer term client as opposed to just a one-off transaction and utilize these text messages in that way. Whereas with an advisor, it's like, how do I stre- strengthen the relationship and how do I, can I ease some of the pressures on my other team members to uh, elevate the communication. And so, um, you know, I, I think that that is a, a challenge that we all need to think about is what is that value that we want out of this technology? And and is it a value that extends beyond something that we never thought was possible that then actually strengthens the go. relationship uh, from that standpoint? Um, I, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, I want to sure. talk briefly about Menguin. And, and I know I'm sure a lot of people uh, love to talk about this because I think it's an amazing success story. Uh, and I'm sure you learned a lot. It, it, well, I know it's an amazing success story and I'm sure you've learned a lot from it. Um, what were two or three lessons you learned from building and then ultimately selling Menguin that you think others can really take and, and build themselves on? That's a great question. I think number one, uh, and this we learned early on when we weren't getting enough sales and we were trying to figure out why people weren't buying our product is you have to build a customer feedback loop. Uh, even up until the week that I left, we, we, we got acquired last year by Generation Tux, which was owned by the founder of Men's Warehouse. I spent a, a little over a year as the CMO of the holding company that managed a portfolio of menswear brands. Up until literally the day before I left, I was talking to customers every single day. Customers, prospective customers, leads, people all across our funnel. And usually I would have to bribe them with some type of Amazon gift card or a promo code or something. Because, you know, people's time is valuable. Mm-hmm. But it, I would always say, hey, I'm XYZ. I need five minutes of your time. And it would usually end up being a little more than five minutes, uh, uh, in all honesty, because they would just give me all this feedback, right? That then informed what we were doing and helped me better understand was something working, was it not working? So having this feedback loop of where you're always talking to customers, leads, even actually the people that I love talking to, people that went somewhere else because they were missed opportunity that I could figure out why we missed them and then basically try to fix it so if people like them in the future, we wouldn't miss. Um, number one, that was really the key. And I think that the key to our success in, in selling the company was we were really, really good at being, staying close to the customer. And ma- major brands like you talk about in Amazon, they're phenomenal at that, right? They don't actually talk to you, but they analyze every single thing you do on their website, right? Every click, every purchase, and they use that to inform the next iteration of the product, the feature, whatever it may be, right? And I think that is how you do it. If you're maniacal about being focused on the customer being your boss, right? And them helping guide the direction, it's gonna be key. So that was the first lesson I learned. Um, the second one that I think is a really, really important one is, um, and we learned this early on in terms of hiring and things like that, uh, uh, it's all about making sure, it really is all about the team, as, as you know, Matt, and you know a lot of folks out there, and it's really easy to compromise on culture and values. You find this great candidate, they have a phenomenal resume, you know, and in the interview they're, you know, they say the right things, but maybe something's just a little bit off and you're kind of in a pinch, you gotta hire someone and, and you make this kind of like, I don't wanna say a gamble, but it's like, I don't know if you're quite right for the culture based on X, Y, Z. And then three weeks later, you're like, this person's a jerk or whatever, I never should have hired them. You know, Making sure that you don't compromise on culture, I think is a really, really important thing. We did that a couple times at Menguin. Usually when we were under duress, we were growing too rapidly and we just needed people, ultimately warm bodies. And it was kind of a, a, a cop out, right? Because if we waited a little bit longer, we could have found someone that would have kind of had everything we need. You know, obviously in today's job market, unemployment rate is at a record low, right? So it's 
harder than ever to find the right candidate. Mm -hmm. It's all about showcasing those intangibles, I think. And for us, once we got better at showcasing our culture, you know, we were, you know, I know this is very different from the financial world. We had, you know, uh, beer fridges and wine bars and catered breakfast and all these things that, you know, people really loved at our office and things like that. Once we got better at showcasing that and bringing candidates in and showing them that it wasn't just a nine to five job, but a better way to work, it became much easier. But really making sure that you don't sacrifice on, on, on culture is a really big one. You, there's a lot of smart people out there that can do XYZ role. It's not it, right? It's all about making sure that culturally you're aligned and that and that they're going to be someone that you enjoy working with. Yeah, and I, I, I think... I think that that is a really good point. I know you mentioned, you said, well, it's a little bit different than the financial world with terms of how you built your office environment and everything of that nature. And I think, uh, again, that's something, that, there's a lot that, that financial advisors can learn from uh, startup companies, but also companies that are mature in the technology world um, that that about their environment, about their culture, about the way that they incentivize employees. And I, I think that that is something that is, a lesson that we can all learn as we continue to evolve and innovate um, our own companies and cultures. And so, you know, beer fridges and, you know, and, and I, I say this, you know, one of the RAs that, that we have, we moved into a new office and we put in a beer fridge into the um, uh, the client or the employee experience room, also the break room. Um, but what that's done is it's evolved into building and, and, and enabling our culture to be better because now people hang out around 5.15, 5.30 and all of these different uh, employees of different divisions are are now communicating and sharing ideas. And and it's it's really enlightening. You don't have to be the suit and tie across from the mahogany table, nine to five, the market's closed at 4.30, I get my email, or four o'clock, I get my emails out and I'm on the road at five, you can be something different, which attracts greater talent for, as well. Completely agree. And, and to that caveat to, you, to your, your employee experience center with, with, uh, with the beer fridge and stuff like that, you know what that says to employees? You know, a lot of people are like, aren't you worried they're going to get drunk on the job? And my immediate thought is no, it actually showcases that I trust them so much that I know that they won't. Right. Right. And I think that that intangible of what I just, you know, didn't have to verbalize it, didn't have to say, hey, make sure you don't have one too many when you're talking to a customer, Matt, wink, wink. But they, they, that understanding that, hey, I trust you. You have this here. It's a privilege, not a right. But we have this here because we trust you and the entire team to do what's right for our customers. We want you to be more comfortable and feel more comfortable uh, and enjoy yourself more at the office. Huge. Because yeah. um, the same thing, we saw people came in earlier, they would stay later, you know, and if things kind of hit the fan, which a couple times they did, Every single person would be there eight, nine at night, which didn't happen often, full disclosure. But when it did happen, you know, we had this camaraderie and this team that stayed there. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was huge. Mm -hmm. uh, and having stuff like that really kind of is a meaningful impact. The power of that is not seen on a spreadsheet or anything of that nature, which yes. I think is good. And, and so I want to I want to kind of wrap this up with with kind of a, another idea as you're starting out on and, and talking about lessons that we can learn in service industries or established industries from younger or, or kind of innovative firms like you've been a part of is kind of the processes, right? And as with Menguin, as y'all were scaling from both a technology and a marketing standpoint, you have to be agile. You have to be flexible of learning from the customer, as you say, and, and then implementing that and letting that drive the direction of your roadmap. Can you talk a little bit about how you run processes or ran processes at, at Menguin and now how you're running kind of the processes to, to create an innovative product uh, in this space that I think 
that you've learned that we can also help advisors learn as they're running their businesses and trying to businessize or businessization of their businesses as we grow? Absolutely. So one of the things I mentioned earlier, I'm not a traditional marketer. One of the things that I like kind of gravitated towards was this idea of growth hacking, growth marketing, which is very much tied to iterative testing, trying a bunch of things in a, uh, a very organized manner so you know what's working and what's not, so you can improve upon those things. And that's kind of how I viewed our entire company through this lens. This framework works for anything. And it, it really is comprised of four different parts. The first is figuring out what we want to improve upon, right? Whether it's more customers, a better pipeline, logistics, whatever, and then ideating possible ways that we could improve upon that, right? So, and for this session to be a whiteboarding session or it can be just in person, and with literally no idea is a bad idea, you throw everything on this whiteboard. And then after that, you prioritize those ideas. You force rank them into what will actually impact that first KPI or objective that you started talking about, right? I want to increase sales by 50%. I want, you know, uh, 30% referral rates from my existing customers, whatever. And then you test them. So you figure out how you can test them in small batches. So whatever is working, you keep that as the majority of the experiment. 50%, 80% of whatever you're doing, you keep the same. And then you take a small subset of your users and you try this, this new thing. So maybe it's, I want to find a way to incentivize my existing clients to refer their friends. So my existing customer is 62 years old. He probably knows someone else. Maybe that's not going to move at that age. Maybe you know somebody in their 50s that is looking for, you know, whatever I specialize in. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can give them an XYZ gift card or whatever. And we test different things. Maybe it's an Amazon gift card. Maybe it's a gift card to an airline. Maybe it's an all-inclusive vacation. You figure out what that a net new customer from your existing base is worth to you. And then you test different things and figure out what works best from a referral standpoint that you can then apply to all of your customers, right? If that's one of the goals. Right. So I would take that approach to anything we were doing. Right. A new customer service avenue or, or a new way to interact with customers or heck, something as simple as trying to optimize. We had a really massive. So at Generation Tux, we had a 3000 square foot facility, 150,000 units in inventory, you know, state of the art, the conveyor belts, you know, everywhere. It was just insane. Testing something. That's what we would do. We would take a small subset of orders uh, and figure out if that made an impact. Right. We would we would look at everything, every metric. Um, and that's not always the easiest to do on a very minute scale, but even if it's something like, all right, we're trying these two different things. And at the end of two weeks, we'll evaluate which one is working better. You don't necessarily have to know what's precisely about the new thing you were testing worked better, just that it worked better or it didn't. Mm -hmm. So you know whether mm -hmm. to adopt it on a, on a broader scale or not. Yeah. And that's how we think about it is this framework of objective ideation, prioritization, and then testing. And then it basically comes all back around analyzing the results. And it's like a big circle and you just keep doing it over and over again. Uh, and you want process improvement, revenue improvement, whatever you want to call it, increase. And that's how we look at everything that we're doing at Voxy today too. Whether it's thinking about customer acquisition or customer onboarding, you know, we're always ideating or trying new ideas and then figuring out how we can test some XYZ new feature, new idea, new whatever, and see how it stacks ranks that ranks to the existing baseline. Yeah, I think that there's two things that I take away from that that are really powerful on the advisor side. One is that the, the, the test that you have to run, the objective or like the kind of the result that you're looking for can be a large result, right? Increase referrals by 50%. That's, you're not going to have that happen with one test. But the it's test... 
exactly are very small in sense of what you're testing. You try small things. And the second point is, is that it's okay if what you test doesn't work. It's not failure and it's not good. And as long as you keep them as like stepping stones, then that failure actually progresses you much further along uh, than it does set you back. And I think that that's something that advisors can take day one. I would actually argue that failure is a more important data point than success because you know what not to do, right? It's really easy if you're successful and you're killing it left and right to say, this is working. You don't really know that usually, but with trying something new that potentially fails, you're like, all right, I know that I'm on some path here, but I know that I should definitely not take a left here because that was a bad idea, right? So that, and then the other big one is compound interest, right? Like one of the, the miracles of the modern world is compounding interest very much the same when you're trying something new. Small incremental wins, right? So we 5X'd our top line when we started texting customers. I skipped over this point. That's what really like made me realize, hey, this is a big opportunity. But that wasn't an overnight thing. It was me testing for two months, trying to figure out the right cadence, what to say to these customers and these cohorts at the right time, the right place, how to follow up. And that was not an overnight thing. Yeah, no, I think that um, I, I think that that's so powerful because of the um, you know I, I just think about it from like onboarding. Onboarding is a really kind of pain point for advisors and just testing how you get the paperwork to your client, right, or the follow up that you have with them. If you can change that, or kind of compress that time, that's really powerful. But you don't have to do it in like this whole. All right, we have to have a strategy session to do the process management and what new technologies do we need? Start small and then innovate it from there. Right. And I actually advocate, like when we first started this conversational commerce approach, literally we were texting from our personal cell phones. And then I went and bought some cell phones prepaid at the store. Like literally that is not scale. That is not a good idea for a rapidly growing company. But my recommendation is do things that don't scale. Do these things that I have no way I can do this for a hundred people. There's no way I can do this for a thousand people. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, you learn as one, is this a good idea? And then two, figuring out how to take it from zero to one or from point one to point five or whatever. That's where the incremental wins are. And you figure that, okay, the pain point is I can't have 30 cell phones because my reps can't handle 30 cell phones. We need a, a platform that's all online and they can basically handle it much easier if they're on a computer typing. Okay, new data point. Let's find that platform or build it or whatever, right? So it's, it's that slow evolution. Yeah, I love it. Well, I, I mean, we could spend sit here all day and talk about kind of this idea of conversational commerce and conversational marketing. Uh, but I know that you need to get back to, to building Voxy. Um, and, and I know that the advisors want to get back there as well. So I want to move into buy or sell. Buy or sell is my, uh, my attempt at bringing in financial advisory into these conversations with innovative minds like yourself. Uh, and what I'm going to do is we're just going to go through four ideas. I'll give you the comment and you either buy or sell. And we're going to see um, whether you're bullish or bearish on some of these concepts. And we can spend about a minute or so talking about each of them. And so we'll see where you stand with the markets. All right. I love it. Let's do it. All right. First one, buy or sell. Within the next five years, more than 50% of companies will be utilizing some sort of conversational marketing tool for prospects and clients. Huge, huge, huge buy. And I think obviously I, I'm staking my career on this. So I'm a bit biased here. But it's, I think we're seeing the death of email, the slow, slow death of email, but it's dying and we need a better way, uh, whether it's financial advisors, whether it's brands, whether it's anyone to engage with their customers, especially this new, this next wave, younger millennials, Gen Z, these people that are gonna be having a major impact on the economy in a variety of ways. We're gonna need a better way to do that. That, we, that does not exist today. So building one-to-one -one relationships, human relationships between 
an organization and, and a customer are going to be key. I firmly believe that people don't buy from brands, they buy from the people that represent those brands, right? And I think that's the key. People buy from people. If you can further that relationship, which is why I think the financial advisor one works so well, even to his age, is, you know, there's, there's this aspect of fear, there's this aspect of emotion that only another human can understand, right? So helping to build that relationship and that bridge is key. Yeah, it's not replacing that relationship. It's enabling and empowering that relationship to be better. I agree 100% with you. Buy or sell, service-oriented companies cannot leverage the same philosophies and tactics that commerce-oriented companies can when it comes to creating brand and marketing. So uh, that's a major sell because it was a cannot. I disagree with that strongly, and here's why. Uh, at Ming, when we were a suit and tux rental company, off the off the cuff, you think we were an e-commerce company. We had a six-month sales cycle. I had multiple buyers that I was selling to: the bride, groom, groomsmen, all these different parties. We actually operated like a services business. Literally, the model that worked best for us. I've literally copied how how software companies marketed, and that's what took you know took us to the next level in a lot of ways. These interaction points. So I strongly disbelieve that. I actually think the exact opposite. I think that more services brands should be looking at what innovative B2C brands are doing or, or, or these big companies are doing and try to copy or imitate as much of that as possible. Uh, I really do think the big forefront innovation is consumer and all, all other brands can, can benefit from it. For example, business to business software, for the longest time it was this clunky, ugly looking software, didn't work well, it was hard to use. And then it was like we had this shift where there's this major focus on design and user interface and making things streamlined and frictionless in the business to business world, right? And look at the boon, you know, companies like Salesforce and all these big brands that have been able to benefit because of that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that all came from consumer, right? If you can make it easy for a customer, painless, frictionless, no matter what industry you're in, you're going to win. Yeah, I love it. I agree there too. Buy, and I tried to throw you off with the cannot, so that was a good pickup. You're you're a good investor. Uh, <laughs> buy or sell, innovation cannot happen within established firms with established processes. So I, again, completely sell. Do not buy this point at all. I actually think it's the exact opposite. I think where the, the majority of the opportunity lies, I think where those these big established firms get caught up is that they've always done something. This is the process. This is the SOP. I'm scared to change it because I might get in trouble or I might get yelled at by my boss or I might lose my job. If firms can do a better job of creating this culture of testing uncertainty, if you will, we don't know what the right answer is in today's world. We're a major firm and this has worked for us for the past 20 years. If we recognize that the next 20 years are gonna be very different, and we're seeing that across the board, literally, 10 years ago, it would have been ludicrous if I told you that you were going to call a stranger off of an app on your phone and they were going to take you somewhere or you were going to stay in a stranger's home, right? And here we are, right? Massive industries. I, I think the only constant that we can have in the business world is that it's going to change. And if you can adopt that mindset of, okay, I don't know what's coming. I just need to try a bunch of stuff and figure out what works and have the culture of acceptance in my company that we're probably going to fail 90% of the time. And what we need to do is reward the people that are trying something new because they have our best interests at heart, which is our long-term success. That I think is the key. And that's, I think, how you spread this innovation. I really do think if more of these firms have this culture of we're going to try new stuff and if it fails, that's okay. And we're not necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to be the entire firm, right? It's small percentage points, right? Because I know everybody's got quarterly earnings, things like that they have to hit. Uh, and you know, responsible shareholders, things like that. But building a culture of acceptance and testing within a bigger company is huge. Yeah. Innovation centers, whatever you want to call them, right? And I think companies that 
for the longest time have been the big butt of jokes, Walmart, right? All these places, they now have those internally where they literally spin up companies, they spin up business units. It's called store number eight at Walmart, things like that, where they literally pay a bunch of people. And again, it's small budgets. If you think about Walmart as this big behemoth to figure out how to disrupt Walmart, right? And yeah. I think that's yeah. the key. You know, if you're not going to disrupt you, someone else will. So that's the, that, that, the, the thing that I would think about every morning when, when I was at Mengwen is, if I'm Amazon, how do I come here and destroy me, right? And that's what I would try to build for. I, uh, dude, your passion, and I could completely agree, but your passion is contagious. And I think that uh, that by itself is, is should, in a, or, uh, you know, make and motivate people that are listening to this about, you know, hey, if I'm not innovating my firm, someone else is. And even if you're in financial services, you know, I, I, I would always wake up and say, can Amazon, how's Amazon going to destroy me in investment services? And if I find a way, I better make sure I get ahead of that so that they don't destroy me. All right, last one. I've created a bearish picture for you because I wanted to see where you stood <laughs> on it. So buy or sell over the next 10 years, text messaging will be viewed the same as email and companies will need to find the next way to communicate with clients and prospects. That's a great one. Um, I am going to be very bearish there, right? And you have, you're right. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> uh, uh, I, look, I, I really do think that text is step one, right? I really think in the future, we're going to live in a world where we're going to know that Matt most prefers text, but John and Jane most prefer Instagram DM, Twitter DM for this per- particular type of news. And some people might still prefer email. I think the real opportunity for brands is, you know, everyone talks about product market fit and am I selling the right thing to the right buyer? I think the flip side of that is, am I communicating and selling the right thing to the right buyer buyer via the right medium that they're actually wanting to be sold on, right? Like for me personally, I like getting my financial advice and things like that from a variety of sources. And if my, you know, if my advisor was, you know, tagging me on Twitter because I follow a lot of financial folks on Twitter and things about the economy or DMing me, hey, check out this article. I want to talk about this next week when we have our you know, monthly lunch or whatever. Doing that would be really impactful because it shows to me that he's thinking about me even when we're not there. You know, and it's not just some algorithm training for me or an actual human that knows my personal situation and is using technology to do his job better, which in the long run works out better for me financially, for me and my family, right? Things yeah. like that. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Um, it's it's right medium, right time. I, I think it's very easy and there's a lot of companies out there, to be very honest, that do this mass texting from a five digit number, your Amazon order has been delivered, you know, coming tonight to John's Pizza, it's 30% off. All of our texting is done from 10 digit numbers exclusively because we want to build a one-to-one relationship between user and the representative from that brand. And we have AI, we also have the ability for users to communicate directly with CX people and things like that. So there's about 70% of the time there's a human on the other end uh, that's communicating with you. So it's, it's human assisted to maximize your delight, right, yeah. as a consumer. I, I, love, I love that. And I think that that's the key, right, is, is how do you make that? It's not just a matter of having a robotic conversation via text message. It's a matter of how do you make that as a human conversation where they can respond with whatever it is that they want, not just with, respond with one for yes and two for no, right? It's come beyond that. Uh, and I think that that's where it's going. So I I am uh, in line with you there. I think that uh, it's, it's a matter of the medium that is best for each individual and understanding that. So let's get into this. I got, I'm going to give you 90 seconds to give your kind of final thought for the listener out there of how they can kind of take some of the knowledge that you have implemented in their firm uh, and be a better firm uh, tomorrow than they are today because of listening to what you have to say. 
I love it. Okay, real quick, one last shameless plug here. Not really. Um, I'm a huge believer in kind of getting to where the puck is going. And I think the big part of that is demographics. The book I really recommend is called Upside by Ken Gronbach. I think that's how you spell his last name. If you search Upside Demographics, you'll find it on, you know, wherever you get your, your books from. Uh, it's changed my view of how I view the world and what's, what's going on because it basically talks about you can predict almost any change by looking at demographics big subsets of people, what they're doing, what they're buying, where they're buying, how they're sleeping, how they're living. And that in turn will uh, uh, define your strategy for today, tomorrow, and the next 30 years. I don't think enough firms do that, right? So shameless plug, if you have time or you're looking for a good book, read it. It changes the way I view a lot of the world and what's going to happen next. And then on top of that, how can financial advisors take everything we've talked about here and, and kind of do better and perform better. It's all about, I think, building a feedback loop to their customer and figuring out what is the best way, what does this customer really want from me? And what's the best way for me to actually engage and communicate with them to get what I want from them as well, right? It's a two-way street, right? Uh, and I think the key to that is all about the subtle cues, right? How do they respond? You know, how are they engaging? I, and I think it's being comfortable being uncomfortable, right? That's really what I want people to get out of all this is, Keep looking and keep thinking about what is something new that I can test today. And I know that there's a lot of people that are very comfortable in the, you know, the routine and things like that. I'm telling you, we have a world coming where that routine will not work anymore. And the only routine will be thinking of a new routine, right? Or, or trying to figure out a better way to improve. Uh, uh, and, and that is the world we live in, right? Because again, it's, if it's not Amazon, someone is coming out to, you know, we all play in big markets these days. Someone is, wants that big market and they want to own it. And I guarantee you that they're going to come after it, right? So it's all about you defending what you already have. The best, I think, offense is a good defense. If you already have happy customers, figure out how to make sure that they stay happy because a happy customer doesn't leave, right? And I think that's the key to all of this uh, is, is that's why I'm really doing all this, right? It's mm -hmm. brands have value that they can give their consumers if they can build a one-to-one -one relationship. I agree, man. Be comfortable being uncomfortable. That is a... A common thing that I like to preach as well. So for me, my closing thought is this. Progress is viewed as moving in one direction, but the act of progressing doesn't occur in a linear fashion. What does this mean? Well, it means that for us to progress individually as a firm or even spiritually, the path is not going to be linear. We are going to make a few steps forward, probably falter, and then make a couple more steps forward. As an industry and as a firm, we are always looking to move forward. Our instinct is always that if something new doesn't succeed at first, then we aren't making the progress we want, that we are wasting time and not focusing on ways to actually move forward. But that isn't true. As an industry and within our firms, we must be open to trying new innovations and being uncomfortable. Because failing with a new innovation isn't a step backward, it is actually progress. The reason? Well, it's taught us something we wouldn't have known if we would have stayed in our comfort lane. Technologies like chatbots and artificial intelligence or new ways of communicating like web conferences or text messaging should make you uncomfortable and definitely aren't perfect. But progress isn't a linear path. Our clients want their companies to continuously progress, and they are open to adopting new innovations. If we want to continue ensuring that our firms are relevant in the future, we should be open to learning from some of recent history's best innovators. Take a risk, because that in and of itself 
is progress in an industry stagnant in innovation. More importantly, you'll find yourself much further ahead than the rest. And that is the essence of progress. I'd like to thank again our, our guests, Bogdan and Voxy, for joining us today and for everybody out there for tuning in and listening to another episode of Bridging the Gap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 